You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127, by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution, 16 Lectures. This is Lecture 6, entitled The Eye at Work Upon the Child, and How This Relates to the Christ Be, given in Zurich on the 25th of February, 1911. In giving a public lecture, such as yesterday's, about spiritual science and our human future, or something similar, one has to take account of the receptivity of our modern world, its rather limited receptivity. One has to recognize that while insights necessary to humanity are flowing down from worlds of spirit in our era, very few people are able to absorb them with an open mind. Most people, without due preparation to absorb such things, would experience the deeper quality of our spiritual science as a shock, as something that appears to them fantastical or dreamlike. This makes it all the more necessary for us to deepen our consideration of the most important questions and embed them more fully in our feelings. And here I want to point to the need to examine more closely the great truth of the implanting of the I, capital, in human nature, a truth that is in fact rather more complex than we usually realize. We know that during the period of old Saturn, the human being first acquired the foundation for the physical body, then during old Sun, the foundation for the etheric body, during old Moon, the foundation for the astral body and that the task, really, of our earthly evolution is to incorporate the I into these other members of our being. Only when we arrive at the end of earth evolution will we be fully pervaded, as far as this is possible, by I nature. If we consider the earthly human being altogether, we can say that I nature is the true center of our being, and yet it must be evident that this I is connected with us differently at different periods of our present life, not always in the same way. And in general we must recognize that we do not as yet grasp the different sheaths of our being if we know only that we are constituted of physical, etheric, and astral bodies and the I. Let us now consider how these aspects of our being can be interrelated, both in the different eras of human evolution and in a single human life. Let us first look at the child. As we know, children learn to say, I, relatively late. This is deeply significant, even if modern psychologists, who think they practice a science, fail to understand what it means that a child comes relatively late to the thought, the inner experience of the I. In early infancy, Indeed, until about three or three and a half, though children may sometimes babble the word I in imitation, they do not as yet have a real experience of the I. 
There is a book titled The Soul of the Child by Heinrich Lotzky, in which you will find the curious statement that a child learns to think before learning to speak. This is nonsense. The child learns to think through speaking. Those seeking spiritual scientific knowledge must be wary of accepting the statements of supposed science today. Children only learn to live fully in the eye and to have knowledge of it around three or so. And something else is connected with this, namely that in ordinary awareness, thus not in higher clairvoyant consciousness, we can only remember back to a specific point in our life, and never before that. If you think back over your own life, you will see that memory halts at some point and does not reach back to birth. Sometimes people confuse things that have been told with their own experiences, but the thread of memory starts roughly from the point when the experience of the I first appears, and our dimmest memories reach back to this time. Now let us ask this. If the I experience was not present in our first three years, does this mean the I itself did not live in us in infancy? In fact, we have to distinguish whether we always know about what exists within us or whether it can be there without our knowledge. The I is present in the child, but unknowingly, just as we are connected to the I when we're asleep, but know nothing of it. The fact that we know about something is not decisive for its being there. We have to say that the I is present, but is not conscious in the child. How is the I at work? Well, that is quite distinctive. If you were to study the physical human brain, you would find that after birth it looks relatively imperfect compared to its later form. Some of its fine convolutions are elaborated later, are sculpted and configured in subsequent years. It is the I that does this in us. And because it has this task, it cannot come to conscious awareness in us. It must elaborate the brain and reconfigure it in finer form so that it can later think. The I is hard at work in these early years. Once the I has become conscious, we would ask in vain how it has done this, how it shaped and configured the brain. You will admit that in our whole life from birth to death, the I does not come to conscious awareness of how it has shaped the brain. And yet we can still ask this question, and the answer we receive is that in this activity, the I is guided by the beings of the higher hierarchies. If we have a child before us and look at this child with clairvoyant perception, the I is certainly present as I-aura. But from this I-aura, currents pass to the higher hierarchies, to the angels, archangels, and so forth. And the powers of the hierarchies stream in. The popular idea that children are protected by their angel is in fact a very real truth. Later this closer union ceases. The I experiences itself, then more in the nerves and can become conscious of itself. A sort of narrowing and closing off occurs. Thus in the child we find a sort of, quote, telephone connection, close quote, in that 
the I extends into the divine spiritual hierarchies. We have to pay serious heed to spiritual scientific assertions. I once said that the wisest person can learn a great deal from children. This is because they do not need to confine their gaze to the child, but can extend their vision on into the world of spirit. For the child has this, in quotes, phone connection to the spiritual world, which is later ruptured. Thus, in the first three years, we have a quite different being before us than we do later on. We have the eye of infancy that works sculpturally under the guidance of beings of the higher hierarchies to elaborate the human instruments of thinking. But then the eye enters these instruments and can no longer work upon them from without. By that point, these instruments must have been configured. Though they can continue to develop as the child grows, the eye can no longer work upon them. We can, therefore, make a clear distinction between a child in the first three and a half years and the rest of life. In esoteric parlance, we call the first the, in quotes, human divine, because it stands in relationship to the higher hierarchies, or the Son of God. The other we call the Son of Man. In the latter dwells the eye and moves our limbs and works, insofar as this is still possible, from within outward. Thus we have to distinguish between the Son of God and the Son of Man. In other words, we have to conceive of a gulf separating the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Son of God, who is primarily active up to the age of three and a half, contains all enlivening powers, spurring us on to pour ever more and more life forces into our organism. These forces also contain something upbuilding, healing, enlivening, by contrast to the being we later are. If at a later stage of life we wish not only to have a human nature dependent on the senses and the instruments of the physical body, through which we relate and connect to our surroundings, but also seek to extend ourselves upward into the world of spirit, then we have to try to awaken something of these powers in us voluntarily. We have to appeal to the forces that live in us in earliest infancy, except that we now waken them consciously, whereas the child unconsciously invokes them. We can see, therefore, that in this respect we possess a dual nature. What appears in these powers of the first three and a half years? Working under the guidance of the higher hierarchies, something comes to expression that works over from former incarnations. You can easily confirm this by studying the human skull, which contains different ridges and depressions depending on the individual. No skull is identical with another, and so you can't have a generally applicable phrenology either. The powers at work in the human skull come from former incarnations and cease to have any momentum after these three and a half years have elapsed. During this period, everything is still mobile and the spirit can still work upon it. Later, everything becomes fixed and it can no longer do so. 
What does it mean that we cannot work with these powers any more later on? What is this due to? It is due to our specific evolution on earth. Once the eye has become conscious of itself in the body, this presupposes that the body is stable and fixed and can no longer be receptive to the work of the powers I have spoken of. We are concerned here with powers intrinsic to us as a species, which build up our human architectural form. If we were to work with these forces of infancy in the physical body for longer than these three and a half years, which is the right and proper period for this, the physical body could not endure it. It would come asunder, break apart. For now the forces that give us stable fixity through physical heredity come into play. If the other powers did not cease, the body would break apart, could not endure it. Instead we sink down into our Son of Man. The Son of God can no longer make headway against our Son of Man after three years. But we still bear this Son of God within us, nevertheless. These powers keep working within the physical body throughout our life, but can no longer directly participate in upbuilding processes. If we inwardly examine ourselves, we can find, though, that the eye with its telephone connection survives. But the physical body is now too coarse, too dense, too, in quotes, woody, for the Son of God to continue shaping it sculpturally. The best powers are present in these first three to three and a half years, and we continue to be nourished by them for the rest of our lives. They are dimmed, and yet they still remain present in later years in the most varied ways. It is as if we were imbued by these powers, yet cannot give direct expression to them. If we seek to absorb ideas of higher worlds through spiritual science, we can do so all the better the more we still contain within us of what lived in us in our first three years when the eye acted selflessly within us. The fresher and more mobile these forces are, the less aged they have become as we advance into old age, the more it is possible for us to transform ourselves through these powers of the Spirit. What we have around us in these three years is the best portion of our humanity. Only the dense physical body hinders us, sadly, from making full use of these forces. Developing them to a special degree in our later years, although we can no longer alter our physical body by this means, for we are no longer soft as wax, we can nevertheless, by making full use of them through esoteric wisdom, enable this power to flow out of us through our fingertips. We gain the special gift of healing, of curing someone by laying our hands upon them if these spiritual forces are still active. They no longer reshape our own body, but they bring blessing and benediction to others as they flow out of us. The goal of earth evolution is gradually to unfold these powers within us, when earthly evolution comes to an end, and we have passed through our many incarnations, we will have had to entirely pervade ourselves consciously with what we possess unconsciously in our early childhood years. 
It makes a difference whether we possess these powers unconsciously or consciously. By then, people will have to have become fully imbued with this form of childlike consciousness. And then it will no longer burst the confines of the body because it will only slowly have expanded it. In world evolution, an archetypal prefiguring was needed for this influx of the power of infancy into humanity. It is self-evident that this paradigm could not be given in the form of a young child. A human being who had attained a certain age had to be pervaded consciously with the same forces that in childhood unconsciously pervade us. If we had a human being before us whose eye we extracted, removing it so as to make him empty of this eye, and if we were instead to pour into him what the child possesses in early infancy, he would bring it to consciousness with his developed brain. Then he would be conscious of what lived in him during the first years of childhood. How long can a human being on earth endure these elements? Three years, no longer, and then he must fall apart. If this principle cannot transform itself, in ordinary human development it does transform, then the human body can endure it for no longer than three years. If it were to be possible at all for a being to bear the forces of infancy consciously within him, then this person's karma must be such that the physical body in whom this being is implanted falls apart after three years. It is therefore conceivable that what the human being will attain by the end of earthly evolution is prefigured in the world by someone whose corporeality is such that his eye can be removed and his incarnations making this possible, another being can be implanted into him. Then the human body would tolerate this implanted being for no longer than three years. By its rightful karma, this human body would then break asunder. And that is what happened. At the Jordan, baptism was present, a human body of such a kind that its eye, the eye of Zarathustra, could depart. And then a being could descend into this body. The Christ being filled it, but could only remain there for three years. After these three years, this body broke asunder in the mystery of Golgotha. What was able to live for three years in that human body is something we must, as human beings, cultivate and nurture and gradually, through incarnations, bring to living reality within us, so that at the end of our incarnations it can be fully and entirely present in the human being. We see here a remarkable connection between the Son of God in the human being and the Christ event. For all the things we find in esotericism can be illumined from various angles. Evidence such as ordinary science requires cannot suffice for esotericism. Evidence is compelling here only when truths are brought together from all sides, reciprocally supporting each other. We can come to know the Christ event from yet another angle by deriving it, as we have done today, from human nature itself. We have seen how we can best understand the Christ by developing an outlook 
that arises from such a truth. We must recognize that at the Jordan baptism there came to dwell in the fully developed body of Jesus of Nazareth, a being that lives in every human body, but only unconsciously, in the first three years of life. And here we must look upon the three years of Christ as a time in which this child being is transposed into consciousness. That is the best way to acquaint ourselves with the Christ being. Old sayings can be variously interpreted. One such is that, quote, Unless ye become as little children, ye will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Close quote. Here we see deep into the profounder meaning that sometimes lies in the verses of religious testaments. Let us consider life in childhood, especially at this period, as it properly unfolds. Modern scientists do not yet know a great deal about what can help us study the true nature of the human being. We have to recognize, firstly, that the human being is radically different from the outset from all other creatures. If you study a creature close to us, an ape, you find that from the beginning its stance is intrinsic in it through a singular balance of weight and posture, the singular balance and distribution of its limbs. To begin with, a person cannot walk at all, but must first develop and achieve this distribution of balance and posture. Through the work of our eye, we have to bring our limbs into a position in which we can remain upright and walk. In these early years of childhood, therefore, this eye not only has to work at modeling and configuring the brain, but also at achieving balance and stability that is not naturally given us as it is to animals. We have to first bring our bones into angles relative to our center of balance that are necessary for walking. The animal right up to the highest animals has this as a natural endowment from the beginning. In the human being, by contrast, the work of the eye is needed to achieve this gradually. Prior to this we crawl or fall over. Thus we would be bound to one place, to the ground, if our eye did not do its work in the first years of infancy. As we saw, the eye works upon its brain, chisels at it and shapes it like a sculptor, so that we can later become discerning beings. And so we can say that we acquire discernment of the truth in life by virtue of the eye shaping its instrument. We have to realize that no further life is possible for us without us achieving it in this way. Another thing that radically differentiates human beings from animals is our speech. Speech, too, must first be achieved by the eye. We do not have a predisposition for speech. It is not one of the capacities we are naturally endowed with. A cow says moo, but this is not yet speech. Acquisition of language depends upon the I dwelling amongst other human I beings. If a person were to be transported to a distant island and lived alone there, he would not learn to speak. Second, dentition is an inherited characteristic, and we would still get our second teeth on this lonely island. 
but speech is something we acquire through the eye in engagement with the human life around us. These differences are important. Thus, in what we call human life, speech is the third thing that our eye acquires. By activating these powers, the growing person finds their path on earth, discerns truth, and lives a human life in engagement with their surroundings. To express what is acquired in this way, the child might say, if it could, quote, The eye within me transforms me such that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Close quote. If we conceive of this transformed into a higher spiritual realm, how must a being that lives for three years in a human body with fully conscious powers of childhood speak to humankind? It would say, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Close quote. And indeed, as these powers of childhood ascend to a higher, fully conscious level, we find again the great exemplar of what becomes apparent in the child at a lower level. This is conveyed through Christ Jesus as a primary truth. The saying, quote, Unless ye become as little children, ye will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Close quote. Cannot be comprehended unless we know what spiritual science can teach us about our connection with enlivening forces of childhood. And it is equally true that what rings out as a radical statement, quote, I am the way, the life and the truth, close quote, is best understood if we see it as a paradigm for what the eye achieves in the body of the child. From such things we gain the possibility of accessing, for the soul at least if not for the body, a portion of the enlivening powers which we need on earth. People today, insofar as they do not acknowledge a world of spirit, have no proper feeling of such realities. If you go to numerous people who live in the mainstream of life today and say to them what I have now said to you about the need to become as little children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you will see what kind of response you get. They will acknowledge that such comments are ingenious comparisons, but that they can't get anywhere with them. They will find it more useful to go and watch some sensational play, or, or even worse. If people have no real feeling for the meaning of these truths, they will find little justification for them. You see, in the feeling for such things lies the very capacity to introduce a childlike gift of apprehension into our life. If you are unable to have sympathy and enthusiasm for something like the comparison between Christ and the activity of the human eye in early childhood, if we regard this as merely childish, then we lack the ability or gift to awaken the originating powers of childhood. All the arid academics have very little ability to awaken these primary powers of childhood and thus to reach the world of spirit. If you have enthusiasm for pondering on such things, it works in your soul so that we can penetrate ourselves with these powers of infancy. But this gives us a portion of what enables us to retain a broad-hearted and open Christianity. I have often said, haven't I, 
that we are only at the beginning of our understanding and apprehension of Christ. For centuries, through to the 12th and 13th centuries, a Christianity existed whose faithful had no means of reading the Bible, who depended instead on sermons and on the teachings of inspired people. Then came a Christianity that stuck to the Bible, that drew its knowledge from the biblical texts. And we are unaware of the power of Christ if we do not recognize that his statement, quote, I am with you always unto the end of the ages, close quote, is something he made real. We are Christians if we recognize that Christ, after his first manifestation, will manifest again in every age for every person who wishes to see him. The Christ is not so poor that he says only the things recorded in the Gospels. We should not repeatedly cite the words, quote, ye cannot yet bear to hear it, close quote, but let humanity, rather, make itself mature enough to perceive the Christ. This will include becoming able to find the right stance toward what pours in through the Jordan baptism, toward the sound, fruitful powers of infancy. This would be a deep and fruitful germinal idea, even if people did not know the name of Christ or anything of the Gospels. Names are certainly not the primary thing to consider. What counts is the being and the reality. We can leave it to others to say that faithful adherence to a religion means invoking particular names. We adhere not to names, but to realities. And we do so, for instance, by discerning the powers at work in early childhood that once descended upon the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Imagine you lived on a lonely island where no news of the mystery of Golgotha had ever arrived. Nevertheless, if there were people living there who in their spiritual life and work absorbed the power of early infancy in full consciousness and cultivated it through into old age, they would still be Christians in the true sense of the word. Then there is no need to search in the Gospels, for Christianity becomes something living and will go on and on developing. This is a distinction we must keep clearly in mind, and then we will increasingly recognize how intimately, really, the Christ mission is connected with the whole nature of the earth. We will be able to see that this Christ mission is something that we can discern in the nature of modern humanity itself, the need for permeation by Christ, of living the Pauline saying, quote, Christ in me, close quote, becomes apparent when we can acknowledge that we need to transform what lives in us in early childhood and pervade the whole of our life with it. Then the Christ is in us. This enables us to encompass Christianity in the broadest and most heartfelt sense and gives us a perspective in which Christianity can assume quite different forms. Times will come when Christ will be called by a quite different name, when quite different sacred texts will exist, and when people will no longer refer at all to an outward history that recounts that Jesus of Nazareth once lived in such and such a place. Instead, through their consciousness of humanity, people will discern this reality.
we present such things because they enable us to show time and time again how the science of the spirit can engage in the deepest conceivable way in the whole shaping of human feeling and how it must become a living practice. Only then will we be able to understand what we find in historical documents. For many, the sacred texts are a book with seven seals. Consider people today. By the end of earth evolution, they will have reached the point of inwardly permeating their souls with Christ. But today, they are only at the beginning of this work. Yet Christ still lives in us, and through all our subsequent incarnations, He will increasingly live in us in an ever broader and deeper sense. How were things back in the time before Christ revealed Himself on earth? As yet the I was only in preparation. The Christ is what gives meaning to the I. And before this, the I was only being prepared. Whenever an entity is still in preparation, the beings who preceded it must help it. The human being was preparing to give the I its meaning up to the point of the events at Golgotha. Until then, other beings had to help us, ones who had previously attained the level of humanity, that is, on Old Moon. We know that these are the beings of the higher hierarchies of the next level, the angels. They stand one level higher than the human being. The primary mission of these beings was to guide and direct humanity as long as human beings themselves were not yet able to look to Christ and to say, quote, Christ gives my eye its meaning, close quote. For this reason, human beings were not able to guide themselves toward Christ, but had to be guided by beings who are their elder brothers. The Bible conveys this with wonderful precision. Consider the precursor of Christ, John. If he is really to be the precursor, he cannot be the figure of which outward history tells, for he does not yet possess the eye in the sense I have described. Therefore, we cannot say that Christ's precursor, John the Baptist, preceded him. Remarkably, the Gospel of St. Mark begins with these words of the prophet, quote, I will send my angel before you who will prepare the way. Close quote. In other words, we must take note of something acknowledged in the abstract in theological circles, but ignored in its actual reality. The outer world is initially maya, illusion. We have to first learn to perceive it in the right way, and then it is no longer maya. When outward events on the physical plane are related by John, this is maya. We do not understand them. The Bible regards the person of John as maya. Within John, taking possession of his soul, lives an angelic being who leads human beings to Christ. John is a carapace for the revelation of the angelic being. The angel was able to enter him because the reborn Elijah was ready to assimilate him. The angel then spoke through him, was sent, and only makes use of John as a mouthpiece. The Bible is very precise in this respect. And so we can say that humankind could only be led toward the eye 
by virtue of the fact that those beings who had completed their humanity stage on Old Moon became the guides of earthly human beings in the pre-Christian period. All ancient leaders of humanity were so because angels worked through them. How is this now for modern human beings? In pre-Christian times, angel beings worked into their nature since they did not yet have the I within them as their own exemplar. But now that we possess the sunlight of Christ, we are able to turn our countenance toward Christ, and through this a power enters us again, which the angels once emanated. In the same way that we once received the angels, we must now receive the Christ through devotion to the Christ being. In his day, John said, Not I, but the angel in me has been sent as a messenger and uses me as an instrument to prepare the path. And in the same way, today, we must say, like Paul, Not I, but Christ in me. We must learn to understand the Christ in terms that spiritual science teaches. We need not hold back in stating what, for instance, I said today about the first three years of childhood. We Christianize ourselves by emphasizing how infancy sheds its sun-like glow over the whole of our life, whereas modern science causes people to grow old prematurely. They fail to imbue themselves with the sun powers of infancy, instead rendering the brain and other aspects of their being desiccated. Among other truths, therefore, let us take up the idea of being able to discern the true nature of Christianity without relying on written documents, reflecting only upon the nature of the human being instead. Rather than seeing spiritual science in terms of theoretical categories and citing the fact, say, that we consist of four members, the physical, etheric, astral bodies, and the eye, we can try to see how these different aspects are connected within us and will then discern how the eye of infancy bears an affinity to another being. We will discern that this eye is, as it were, like a sheath, and after three years entirely shifts its role in relation to the other members, the rest of our human nature. This insight acquires its proper value when it becomes an actual power in us, and when we say this, we must pass through many incarnations on earth in future. We know that we can develop what is within us to an ever greater and broader degree and bring it to ever greater awareness. We know that we can entirely pour out the higher human being, the Son of God in us, upon the Son of Man, and thereby continue to ascend and advance from incarnation to incarnation until the earth arrives at its goal. At that point the earth will become a corpse, just as each single person becomes a corpse, just as each person's corpse returns to the earth while the soul rises to the world of spirit. So it will be with the whole earth. If we regard the whole earth as the body of all humanity, we can say that the earth will die and become a corpse, will dissolve into the matter of the universe, will be pulverized, so that its substance can be used anew. 
but the human being will rise into worlds of spirit so as to pass on into the next planetary stage. And we must keep in mind that these words are not abstract ones. It is strange, isn't it, that there are people who think that our earth with the sun and the other planets originated in a great fog soup and nothing more, and that from it emerged the sun, the earth, and through confluence and amalgamation of matter, the human being arose, and that our human evolution will simply continue and eventually come to an end in the grave of earth, the whole thing a meaningless episode. The future history of culture will find it very hard to understand this morbid fantasy, to understand how human imagination could ever have become so morbid as to seriously accept this idea. To formulate the Kant-Laplace theory is tantamount to explaining humankind in terms only of the dust into which we return at cremation. Such a science is deadly. It does not enliven the living power in our soul. Spiritual science seeks to enliven this power, to develop it within us to ever higher forms, and enable us to see ourselves as more than a configuration of dust. It enables us to develop toward a new planetary existence. The end of Lecture 6